0: I titled the sermon, Every Knee Will Bow, and uh, we're going to be doing this chapter in two parts. So this is part one. Next week will be part two, Every Knee Will Bow. And uh, as we heard in the call to worship, as Billy read that for us, it is true, every knee will indeed bow, whether willingly or not. Every single person who has ever lived will bend their knee, as it were, before the sovereign God to acknowledge Him and to commend Him in His rightful place as Lord and God. Even though in this life, there are far more knees that are not bowing, right? Today, may the Lord accomplish this in our lives, that our in- inclination to bend the knee would be so much quicker as we, as we move through these things and see His glory. So Daniel chapter 4 is where we're going to be, verses 1 to 27. I want to give you just a little bit of a, a glimpse here that, that we'll, we'll catch these cues as we move through chapter 4, but the difference between chapter 3 and chapter 4 is massive. It is like night and day, okay? So between chapter 3 and chapter 4, about 30 years pass. Um, you've got 30 years after the fiery furnace, Um, likely that Nebuchadnezzar is now in his 35th year of his reign. His reign lasted for 43 years before he died. And uh, so we're somewhere right around the 35th year, most scholars believe. That would put Daniel, who was a teenager when he was taken from his home, now he has been at least 30 years in uh, a pagan foreign land in Babylon as a slave of a pagan king serving in his council And he is right around 45 to 50 years old. So you don't know that right off the gate when you start reading through this. But as you piece things together, this this is significant. And it helps us understand a little bit more of what's happening here as we read. So with that in view, let's jump in. Verse 1, 1 through 3, an unexpected song of praise. And This is completely unexpected. Listen to how this goes. King Nebuchadnezzar. To all peoples, nations, and languages. Now, does that sound familiar from chapter three? And this is how it starts off: To all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all of the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Okay. And then he says this: It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs! How mighty His wonders! And then he adds this, and this is just mind-blowing. His kingdom, not mine, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Wow. What we have here is another call to worship. This is a call to worship, but it's completely opposite from the call to worship we saw in chapter 3 where Nebuchadnezzar was calling the peoples, nations, and languages to worship the statue of himself, erected 90 feet tall and coated in gold. Now you have the same man calling the nations, the same peoples, to the worship of the Most High God. Something significant has taken place, and chapter 4 unfolds it for us. You might call this testimony time. There's power in a testimony, isn't there? There's power in sharing what God has done. This is is King Nebuchadnezzar, who is seated on his throne, the the most powerful man on the earth at this point, and he is giving a testimony to the greatness and glory of God. What an amazing thing it is. Friends, just, just a reminder for you God has given you a testimony, a story to tell, a story of wonder. And salvation, a story of what God has done to save you from yourself, to save you from his wrath, to save you from eternal damnation. And that is a testimony that only you have. It's it's fine-tuned for you and equipped for you to carry and share. So right out of the gate, we should be encouraged to do exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. I'm struck by this. He begins with the end. He begins with the end. And so, in a sense, he gives us a glimpse of where he's going, and then he's going to tell the story. This is how it happened. This is what God did for me. That's a great way to start a testimony. I can't help but point you to glorify the God, and let me tell you why, the the Most High God. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you what he did for me. Let me tell you what he did in my life. Testimony is a powerful thing. He begins with the end, and you could not have a more uh, opposite message than the previous chapter. A man who was full of himself is now bowing before the Most High God and proclaiming to everyone that he can reach the glory of God. That's what God can do. That's what God can do. Is there any heart too hard? Is there anyone too far gone that is out of the reach of our God to save? The answer is no. King Nebuchadnezzar is a great Old Testament example. The Apostle Paul is a great New Testament example. God can save a terrorist and turn him into an apostle. He can write Scripture through him if he wants. So, let's see how this unfolds. He says this, God's kingdom, the Most High God, God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. God was was testifying of his own glory to this king and it was falling on deaf ears again and again. And then God decided to do something to shake this man from his sinful slumber. Let's see how it goes. Listen to the story now. Oh, I just want to add before we do this, it is noteworthy that Nebuchadnezzar is writing these words. Okay, just just stop and consider that. That, Now, probably working with Daniel, no doubt, working with Daniel to pin the Scripture, the, the work of God, but this is first person as it begins, then it moves to third person and returns to first person at the end. This is Scripture, Holy Scripture recorded forever. And don't you think it's interesting that the most significant words of this man are recorded once he is saved. He's giving first-person account now to what God has done in his life. That's that's pretty awesome. God chose to write Holy Scripture through a godless pagan king saved by his grace. So now, listen to the story. Another alarming dream. Another alarming dream. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, and prospering in my palace. Now, that should tell us that the uh, 30 years or so that elapsed after what we saw take place last week—the golden image and all of that—the the, the display that God gave him there had absolutely no impact on him beyond just some words. They were just mere words, because he just continued on in the way he was he was at. These words, at ease and prospering, and I think he would probably build that out and saying, because of me, because of my hand, I was, I was at ease and prospering, doing what I wanted to do. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in my bed, fancies, uh, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree, and here we go again. We're like, oh man... Who's going to get their house leveled and be torn limb from limb, right? Don't miss this. I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me. Now remember, they're still alive because of Daniel. That, like, none of them should be there but for Daniel and the Lord's grace. That all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. So he's not saying you have to tell me the dream any longer. He's saying, just tell me what it means. I need to know what it means. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, same old crew, 30 years later. Maybe a few died off because they were old, right? Here here comes the crew. They came in, and I told them the dream, Nebuchadnezzar says, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. Old habits die hard, don't they? Right? You would think, after the history that this man has had, that he would kind of get the the idea that this group is just blowing hot air. These people are inept. They cannot do what what he keeps expecting them to do. And and why is Daniel not the only one brought in? Why didn't he just say, Daniel, here's the deal. I had another dream. You've, You've got a pretty good track record here. Nope. He turns to the wise men of his own pagan council. They come in, and they're like, King... We can't do it, but I think there's more, because when you hear the dream, you're going to be like, well, <laughs> it's not really that hard. It's, it's sort of obvious what's going on in the dream. If, if anything, I think these men know what's going on, and they're too afraid to tell the king, because they're wanting to keep their limbs and their houses The wise man's inability, or what I would add, lack of courage. Lack of courage. Fear of man. What about all the violent threats? Where did those go? Well, either this man has tempered a bit over time, or he knows that he can always go to Daniel. And there may be some indicator of Daniel's uh, 30 years of wisdom and counsel echoing out in this. It's possible that God has used Daniel in the position that he placed him to to kind of help the king pull back from all his self-destructive ragings, right? I mean, no violent threats here. No one's losing their limbs, and yet they can't do it. At last, Daniel came in before me. Listen to those words. At last, finally, Daniel came in. So the king Uh, is looking to Daniel now. He had to wait a certain amount of time, and at last he came in before me. And don't miss this. Who does he say came in? He says Daniel. And then he adds this. He he who was named Belshazzar after the name of my God. Now, that is significant. The more I looked at that, the more I realized King Nebuchadnezzar is calling him Daniel. That's that's a change. And he's saying this. By the way... uh, his name was changed to, to, to reflect my God. And this is, this is his pre-conversion uh, mindset, right? But now he's calling him Daniel. He said his name was changed to Belshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. So this is, this is how he used to think. Despite the fact that Daniel made this clear over and over and how many times this had to just drive Daniel nuts. It's not... The spirit of the holy gods. Plural. There's one God. And he's the one I represent. But this is the, the pre-converted uh, Nebuchadnezzar speaking. So he says, And I told them the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that, I'm, uh, that I saw and their interpretation. So, don't miss that. The, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods? Uh, this is uh, King Nebuchadnezzar is still polytheistic at this point. He is he is looking to try to leverage any god that he can find for his own benefit. There's a change coming, a very notable change. So Daniel goes to work. Verse 10: A magnificent tree brought low. Magnificent tree brought low. The visions of my head as as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its uh, top reached to the heaven. It was visible to the end of the whole earth, and its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches." And all flesh was fed from this tree. Now, it's helpful for us to see what is likely the tree that is being referred to, at least in the image here. Most commentators believe that the tree being referenced is a, a cedar of Babylon, a cedar of Lebanon. Uh, these cedars were renowned in their day. And uh, this is an example of one probably that, that broke off in the top because they're, they're often even taller than that, but look at the spread. Look at the branches of this magnificent tree, a cedar of Lebanon. That's the tree in view in this dream. Now, there's not fruit, so I, I don't know exactly how that means that the imagery here goes beyond. Obviously, not all flesh is going to live under that one tree, so there's imagery of dream being expounded. Likely, the canopy of dominion, Protection, all of those things in view. He goes on. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, that's an angel, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said, thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump and the roots. In the earth, uh, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Now, in your Bibles, note this. Let him, all of a sudden, we move from the tree to personification. Let him, you might underline that, circle that, be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the, in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed From a man, so now we're talking about a man, we know specifically here, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the angels, the watchers, and the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end, what's the goal, what's the purpose statement, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowliest of men. i finish this little section. This dream I... King Nebuchadnezzar saw. So he's giving now some commentary. And you, O Belshazzar, tell me the the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So this is the the scenario. This is the moment that that Daniel is given by God's purpose to explain to the king this dream. just struck by this. This dream is not Mission Impossible, is it? It's not at all like the previous dream. This is pretty straightforward. In fact, in the dream itself, as Nebuchadnezzar recounts it, the purpose of the dream was made clear. And the person, there's a person in view. Not hard to imagine who that is. Hmm. This could be a statement for the book of Daniel a summary statement over the the book of Daniel as well. I tend to point to chapter 2, but this is a spectacular summary of what God is, is, is proclaiming in the entire book of Daniel. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will, and then He adds, and sets it over the lowliest of men. What's He saying about Nebuchadnezzar in that moment? He's saying Your kingdom is not because of you. You, And I'm going to show you why that's true. I am going to prove that you are the least likely, the least worthy to be the one that carries the scepter over this dominion that you have. And I'm going to prove it. We'll see how this unfolds. A warning of impending judgment. Daniel now steps in and begins to give the interpretation but reservedly, look, look at how it begins in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, this is narrated by Nebuchadnezzar still, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answer and said, uh, answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar said, answered and said, My lord, uh, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Okay, so there's, there's some stuff going on here. First of all, Daniel doesn't have to spend uh, time, uh, we, at least not in the text, that we have any, any sense that there's a length of time in seeking the Lord to understand this dream. I think the Lord gives him understanding right there. As the king relays it to him, he knows. So he was dismayed for a while. You can see him, maybe he's pacing a little bit, and he's he's wrestling through, okay, how do I put this? How how do I say this? Now, is Daniel afraid to die? No, I don't believe so. That's not the threat in view. Daniel is trying to figure out how he can can frame this, because it is a devastating judgment that is about to fall upon this king. You might say, well, why, why does he hesitate? Isn't this Isn't this a godless and pagan king? Wouldn't he be delighted that this is going to happen? Well, it reminds us, friends, God's grace that has met us is an undeserving grace. And the way that we carry truth in this world is to be mixed with with love and seasoned with grace, isn't it? We We don't just lop people upside the head with truth. You know, there's a fine line between Standing against sin with hate in your heart and standing against sin with love in your heart. I think Daniel models this so well. He's in a foreign land, absolutely. He's spent 30 years as a slave of a pagan, godless, ruthless, and brutal king. And yet he says, "May the Lord, "'My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you "'and its interpretation for your enemies.'" This is a way of saying, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. But the reality is, is there's some truth here that's coming your way. It's an old school way of saying, this is going to be a hard pill to swallow. But I'm going to tell you anyway, there is compassion and truth that come together in this hesitation of Daniel. It actually reminds me of what Jeremiah wrote as the Lord commanded uh, these exiles in Babylon. Listen to this command that God gave to the exiles who were in Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, we know who we're talking about. We're talking to Daniel at least, among all the others who were hauled off. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. And then skip down to verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. (laughs) Wow. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find welfare. So pray that Babylon will actually prosper as you are there in captivity. He says, build houses, plant gardens. There's another verse in there that says, marry and, and, and procreate and grow in number. Don't, don't hold back and sit in bitterness. It'll destroy you. Bless, pray for those who you would see as enemies. Pray for their prosperity because as they prosper, so will you. So it helps us understand the mind of Daniel in this hesitation before he engages this this judgment really on his king he goes on then and he says this the tree which you saw which grew and became strong so that the top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and fruit was abundant and in which was food for all under the which the beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived oh king it's you it's you king and I think at this point, he's like, well, I mean, I figured so. Like, I mean, pretty much everybody knows that. But when you hear the word from the prophet who represents the Lord, it kind of sets in, doesn't it? You have grown strong and become strong. Your greatness has grown and, and reaches to heaven, your dominion to the ends of the earth. By whose hand we always remember? By the hand of God. It is all, of, all that you have is by the hand of God. And with that in view, he can take it away. He goes on. <clears throat> because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, And let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. Then he says this is the interpretation. O king, it is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my lord the king that you shall be, listen to this, you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, Okay. (laughs) And at this point, Nebuchadnezzar's probably like, eh, I don't know about that. Right? And you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. Basically, you're spending your days and your nights in a field, like a veritable cow. Seven periods of time shall pass over you. Most believe that's seven years. A full judgment. Till you know till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Hmm. We're going to see a little more detail here. I would say these, uh, these rings, this bronze and iron ring that are banded around the stump of the tree, um, oftentimes you would see that to preserve a stump and hope that it would sprout again. But I think there's also a constraining humiliation in view. Your humiliation is coming, king. God is going to chop down this tree. He is going to humble you. What's amazing about this is that God ordained a seven-year period of time for the most spectacular ruler on this earth to eat grass like a cow. And yet, during that entire time, these bands serve both to humble and to protect. His kingdom stays intact during this time. We'll see this next week as it unfolds. But how weird would it be to walk into the great Babylon and be like, so, you know, where's your king? And they're like, well, a bit of a story there. He's grazing. We, we had to build this weird fence because, yeah, we don't want him to get out. He's got some goats with him, though. He'll be all right. He's, he's been like that for five years. I mean, just imagine how crazy this would be to, to experience not just the king. This is the entire kingdom. Witness to the Most High God who does as He wills. He does as He wills. He rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Now, uh, I just have to insert here a reminder. I remember sitting and, and hearing a, a a very well-known man who is now apostate. He said this to to someone, and oh, it sounded great at the time to them. He said, you know, God is the ultimate respecter of persons. He will never force his will upon anyone else. And oh, they nodded, oh, that's wonderful. That's so good to hear. God loves me so much. He just loves me. He's just waiting for me to... I remember hearing that and wanting to jump out of my chair in that moment. Because as wonderful as it might be to have your ears tickled with a line like that, he's the ultimate respecter of person. He would never push his will upon another. Guess what? He's God. And there is nothing in your Bible that denotes anything like that. Oh, it sounds good to us who seek to be sovereign over the sovereign God, who who would like to paint a world where our will is sovereign. Friends, that is just not the case. It is not the case. God is not looking to Nebuchadnezzar here for permission. He raises him up and he chops him down to show whose glory? God's glory. God is the sovereign in the equation. He is a loving God. If He was the respecter of persons who was just completely bound up by our free will, how would He love us when our pride ran us to the fires of hell? And it's what we want. We just keep running away, running away, What we need is a God who pushes right past our stubborn, hardened hearts and says, I love you, and I am going to open your eyes by humbling you of your pride and turning you to my son. That is the sovereign God we serve, not just in salvation, but in the way he rules over this earth every single day. He rules the kingdom of men, and He gives it to whom He will. Sometimes He puts people in office, and we're scratching our heads like, how did that happen? What in the world were these people thinking who voted for this person? And ultimately, we know, yes, we participate, yes, we vote, but it is God who places. God places. And sometimes He places to judge that nation. Nebuchadnezzar is being wielded by the hand of God as a rod of discipline for 70 years. The the date is set from the beginning. 70 years you will be in exile. And at the appointed time, he will be brought low. And if God decides to save someone, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. This is our God. My glory I will give to no other. I will not give my glory to another. Isaiah 48, verse 11. Why is that such an important thing to know? Why is God making such a big deal about His glory? Why is pride such a problem for God when He sees it in us? Why why does He oppose it so much? Pride destroys us, my friends. And it steals what is due the God of all glory. He deserves all the glory and praise. Think of Romans 1. For though they knew God, they did not what? Honor him as God, nor give thanks to him. Those two things are at the very core of our depraved rebellion. I know he exists, and I won't honor him. I will honor me. And I won't give thanks to him. I will thank me. I stand on my own. Oh, the inclination to self-sovereignty is at the core of our rebellion against God. Is this judgment or mercy? I mean, when you stop and think about it, (laughs) if you actually think of what's going on here, judgment might be release the brakes, right? So when God hardened Pharaoh's heart, did God actively reach down and and make it harder? No, I think he released Pharaoh to do what Pharaoh does, which is harden his heart all the more. God, the ultimate judgment of God is for him to step back, to give them over to a depraved mind, to do what ought not be done. Romans 1, it's clear. Waves of wrath, judgment. When he steps back to release us to ourselves, that is the worst form of his judgment because we are self-destructive in our pride. I would call this actually mercy. And love, kindness of God. Here's how I'd say it. It is pure love when God tears down our foolish pride and lands us on our knees before Him in humble repentance and dependence. It'd be like a little kid who says, I do, I do, I do. And then stands under a boulder the size of a dump truck it says, I do, I do. It's not happening. It's foolish. And yet, oh, our instinct, I do, I do. And God says, No, I love you too much to let you destroy yourself. It's pure love that God is showing Nebuchadnezzar, it's total grace, undeserved. His kindness overwhelms, even though he will experience some intense discipline here and judgment. Now, a gracious call to repent, verses 26 and 27, a gracious call. What is grace again? It's unmerited favor. It's not deserved. Listen to how Daniel then gives kind of a, a, a call to this king with this judgment in view. This, it's in view. Verse 26, as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from that time, from the time that you know that it is heaven that rules. Heaven rules. That's the whole goal. Not you, king. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins. What is that? That's a call to Repent. Practice righteousness, your iniquities. Turn away from them by showing mercy to the oppressed. And then he adds this, and I love this language. He's not giving a promise that he doesn't have the the authority to give. He's saying there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. If God wills, he can lengthen your prosperity. This is a gracious call to repent. One of the things I love about Scripture is the warnings of Scripture. God loves us with warnings. The book of Hebrews is filled with this. The book of Hebrews is written to believers, right? Keep believing. Don't turn away. Don't cease from persevering. Just keep running the race. Keep trusting Him, no matter how hard it gets. If you run the other way from Him, if you turn away, You will burn in fire forever. Well, what is that? That is a real warning to encourage persevering faith. It's real. And what we know is for those who claim to be following God and then they run into the dark with all resolve and they stay in that place with a hardened heart, then we know that they were not saved, they were playing games. Either that or God will bring a swift rod of, of discipline and bring them out of the dark or just take them home to be with Him. The warnings of God display the love of God. It's like a parent who says to their children, don't do that. Don't, don't touch that. It's hot. It will burn you. Don't do it. There are many examples of God relenting from His anger, of God relenting from the wrath that he was going to bring. Why? Look at Nineveh. (laughs) The seven-word sermon preached by a prophet who did not want to see repentance and God accomplishes repentance in a pagan land and relents from the disaster that he intended to bring. Hmm. Take heed the warnings of the Bible, my friends. They are real. God's not playing games. He's loving you by warning you. Humble yourself before the Lord. Break off from sin and iniquity. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is an echo, I think, of the New Testament. I hear this in John the Baptist preaching. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So it's not just do stuff. It's show a repentant heart through actions of humility and obedience. Honor God and seek to obey Him. Now, the question is, will he do it? Will this man hear the warning? We're going to see next week. The answer is no. <laughs> no. He does what he does. It is not in him to humble himself. He can't do it. And neither can we. Neither can we. But God can. And we're going to see how that unfolds next week. Don't read ahead, right? So, okay, Stay with me. Let's come back next week. Okay. There may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. A response this morning. There's a few things that come to mind as we think about this. Oh, just think first of, of the glory of God that would show love like this. That would, that would not just step back. Now sometimes he does and he has the right to. He can give over to sin. He can release His restraints and let us run, break neck to the fires of everything that we have stored up and deserve under His wrath. He can do that, and He is right to do that if He pleases. He doesn't owe forgiveness or grace or kindness or mercy to anybody. He does owe justice and wrath. Anything short of that is absolute love and kindness and mercy undeserved. The primary sin that sends people to hell is pride. Have you ever thought of that? There are many, many sins and expressions of sin, but the primary reason that people are sentenced by God to the fires of eternal hell ultimately tends to be pride. I don't need you. I can save myself. I will will earn my way to be righteous before you. I can do it. And he's like, no, you can't. No, you can't. Oh, yes, I can. Pride. Or, I know you exist, but I'm going to pretend that you don't. And there is no God. There, there is no God. I will not honor him. I will, I will not acknowledge him. Even though I hate him, there is no God. Think of all the expressions of pride that can be found in this world. Our world is riddled through and through with pride, but friends, it's not just out there. It's right in here. It's right in here. The, 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 the fight against pride doesn't end the moment you're saved. It begins. It begins in earnest. We hunt and kill and seek to choke it out. Go after pride. We go after pride. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud. Now, know this about your God. The God that we love and worship, He hates sinful pride. He hates it vehemently. He opposes it. He will crush it. One of the reasons He hates it so much is because it keeps us from Him. And it belittles His glory. It's it steals from what is God's alone. So, this is true. God opposes the proud, but this is also true. But He gives grace to the humble. When you bend your knee before Him, oh, and you bow in repentance and you look to Him, oh, God delights to show kindness and mercy as you walk in the Christian life. If you begin to puff yourself up in pride, God will love you by opposing every expression of it in your life. And as you grow in Him and you are marked increasingly by the bending of the knee and the looking to Him in dependence, He loves that. He loves that. That means, believer, there is something you can do today that delights the heart of God. That is bend your knee. Look to Him. Delight in Him. Say, oh Lord, help me in this. I need a greater humility in my heart. The gospel is good news for proud people. And everyone on this earth is proud at their very core. The gospel is good news. We heard in the call to worship that the very nature of the salvation God designed to save proud people is through a humble servant. That not only modeled humility, but accomplished humility for you in the gospel. That's good news. It's good news. It is good news because left to ourselves, we can't bend our knee. (laughs) We, We wouldn't do it. We are slaves to sin, and sin in pride doesn't want to bend the knee. But God loves us all the more. And he overcomes that resistance and says, drop to the floor and look to my son. If you're here and you have yet to turn from your sin and repentance and faith and run to Jesus, the humble and victorious Savior of all sinners who look to him in faith, then today, this is the day, do it. Run to him. Look to him. Cry out, oh, save me, Lord. Do what I can't. I'm sick of this sin. I'm sick of self. I'm sick of darkness and falling flat on my face. I'm sick of living in opposition to you and having your hand heavy on my life. I want to bend my knee before you and acknowledge you and adore you and trust you through your son, Jesus. You will be saved. You will be rescued from yourself. Set free from a stubborn will. Into worship. A greater worship awaits. This is the Psalm, Psalm 34. Listen to this. This is really what Nebuchadnezzar does at the beginning, and we're going to see next week at the end. My soul makes its boast where? In the Lord. I'm boasting in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. And then the invitation. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name. Together. What a difference between chapter 3 and chapter 4. This is the song of God's people from ages old. It's the song we will sing forever. May it mark your life this week. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we delight in the glory that is yours, we delight in the right that is yours to rule. You are sovereign. You are free, you are absolute in your authority, and you do as you please. You raise up, and you put down. You save to the utmost, and you sentence to the eternal fires of hell. You are sovereign, you are God. We delight in your kindness that you showed to this man, a man who was absolutely worthy, just like we are, of your eternal wrath, that you would show him kindness and mercy, It's incredible. What a display. Lord, that you would show me your kindness and mercy blows my mind completely undeserved. We we thank you for your glory. We thank you for the glory of your Son. In his humility, he shone forth your glory. It was such a bright and glorious display. Jesus, thank you for your humility Thank you that you humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross, and that you are now highly exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father, and that you are our hope. We delight in the glory that is yours alone, and we ascribe it all to you. Be glorified, our God, forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.